Man, that was good. Hey, it's great to be together this Lord's Day morning as usual. I just love coming to worship with you guys. And uh, obviously, we've been kind of cruising through Paul's defense of the doctrine of resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In the final section, Paul summarizes some of the key emphasis of the chapter, and he adds new information regarding those who are still living at the time of Christ's return or second coming. So he's been talking about resurrection. Now he's going to talk about the implications of resurrection, not just for those who have died and are buried in Christ, who have literally physically died, but those who will be alive when Christ comes. The language and imagery in this final section is characteristically apocalyptic in its mention of the kingdom of God. And it resonates strongly with 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28, where Paul described the final events associated with Christ's coming, namely the handing over of the kingdom and the subjection of all things to God the Father. In the previous section, 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to 49, that's where we were last week, Paul explained that the transformation of believers' bodies will occur. Now, in the final section, he insists that this transformation, it must occur, it has to occur, since the present human body is radically incompatible with God's imperishable kingdom, the kingdom to come. So that's his focus in this last section. He's not just talking about how there will be transformation, but he's talking about how there must be. It has to take place. There has to be resurrection. So that's what we'll be focusing on this morning as we wrap up chapter 15. Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. And our verses for this morning will be verses 50 to 58. And this will be a three-point sermon. And I'd like to pray for God's help before we get to work. Father, we lift up this time to you once more, and we thank you. We're, we're just rejoicing right now in, in the worship through song that we just participated in. I, I really feel like it's done me much more good than all the coffee I've drank this morning. And um, it's just invigorating to, to hear and to sing with the body of Christ to you. And, and we've done that. And we thank you for that blessing that you have given us now. It's amazing that you bless us when we cry out to you. In fact, in, in any way that we serve you or even acknowledge you, you are blessing us. And so we're so thankful for your grace that we have in Christ. We now ask that you teach us once more about the resurrection and its implications for those who will actually still be alive. They'll be Christians, but they'll be alive when Christ comes. And we're going to learn about that this morning. And so teach us today about the death of death and all these things that are in this wonderful text. In fact, Lord, we've been singing these things already this morning, and now we're going to learn about them from your word. And so we pray that we have... Um, we're humble and we have open minds to your word that we would be willing to apply it in the strength and power of the spirit and to live it. And we pray that you receive all glory for all that is said now and, and everything else that we're doing. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Again, three-point sermon. We're going to pick up where we left off last week and look at today's first point. We can put that up on the board. This is the first thing that, that Paul is going to talk about here, and it is the necessity of the transformation of the natural body for entry into God's future kingdom. Okay, and we see this in verses 50 to 53. 
There is an absolute necessity to this transformation that will come through resurrection for us to even enter into this imperishable, perfect kingdom. In other words, we've got to be made perfect, not just in soul, which has happened, but in bodily form to be able to step foot in this place that Christ is coming to establish. And we begin in verse 50. Paul says it like this, I tell you this, brothers, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Stop there. Now, the phrase kingdom of God appears seven times in Paul's letters. For example, 1 Corinthians 4.20, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10, 1 Corinthians 15, 24, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, right here in our text. We see it in Romans 14.17. We see it in Galatians 5.21. What's the point? The point is that the kingdom of God is a subject that Paul liked to talk about. He talked about it quite a bit. It appears at least seven times in his letters. In fact, Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God more than any other subject. And that's kind of insane when you think about all that he said. You think of the Sermon on the Mount and everything else, but statistically speaking, when you boil down the subjects that he covered, that was the one that he covered the most. And believe it or not, money was something that he covered quite a bit too because money seems to distract and block people from receiving the gospel. So he talked about the kingdom a lot. Jesus did. He actually began his ministry preaching about the kingdom, and he ended his ministry preaching about the kingdom. Mark 1.15, Matthew 26.29, the bookends of the Lord Jesus' preaching were the kingdom of God. Very important subject. Now, notice the clause or prohibition in verse 50 of our text. Paul says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God right now in its form, it is currently a spiritual kingdom. And, and it must be received spiritually. Okay, that's the form that it's in now. Yes, there is a kingdom of God coming, but there is also a kingdom of God present. In fact, Jesus said pretty much wherever he was or wherever he was at any given moment, the kingdom of God was there with him. So when he came down... During Christmas time, so to speak, which is what we celebrate this time of year, is his coming down as a baby. When he came down, he brought the kingdom with him. But right now, it's in a spiritual form. Every believer is part of the spiritual invisible kingdom. It is in a spiritual kind of mode right now. And it has to be received spiritually. In other words, you cannot enter this invisible spiritual kingdom as mere flesh and blood, as a spiritually dead person, which is what all sinners are by nature. You have to be born again, spiritually, raised to life spiritually to enter into the spiritual realm, to be an inheritor of the spiritual realm, to be a possessor of the spiritual realm, to be a citizen of the spiritual realm. You have to and how do you do that? How is one born again? Well, obviously, it's a work of the Holy Spirit, and it is done by those who exercise childlike faith in Christ. And what I'm saying here is a combination of John 3, 3, where Jesus talks about being born again, and then he talks about how those, how people who are born again essentially receive the kingdom, and it must be received through childlike faith. And that's Mark 10, 15. So, the kingdom that Jesus is bringing is already here in a sense, but it's in the spiritual form right now. In the future, however, 
Upon the return of Christ, the kingdom of God will be manifested on earth physically, not merely spiritually, but physically. Jesus will establish the literal physical kingdom of God on earth. So when he comes, we shift from the spiritual presence of the kingdom to the physical presence of the kingdom. Again, what did Jesus say? Where I, and this is a paraphrase of his teaching, where he is, the kingdom is. Logically, if he comes and he returns, if he came the first time and the kingdom was with him, it was with him. If he comes the second time, what is he bringing with him? Will he be here? Yes. What will be with him? The physical kingdom of God will be with him. So when he comes, he brings it with him. He will establish it. And after he has destroyed every rule, every authority, every power, and placed every adversary under his feet, making them his footstool, including death, the final enemy, he will then hand this kingdom that he has brought and established, he will hand this kingdom of God over to his Father, that God may be all in all. This is what we learned in previous texts, in chapter 15, 24 to 28. So right now, think of it like this, right now the kingdom of God must be entered spiritually, right? You're, you, you have childlike faith, you believe in Jesus Christ, you're, you're born again, and not in that order. I think people are born again first because they're spiritually dead. So you're born again, you exercise faith and repentance. You enter that way through regeneration and faith. In the future, however, this kingdom of God, which will be brought here physically, it will be entered physically, not merely spiritually like now. It must be entered physically. Since the kingdom of God in its future physical form is, as Paul says, imperishable, it can only be physically entered by those who possess imperishable bodies. Hey, right now, you have an imper if you are in Christ, you have an imperishable born-again soul. Your spirit has been made new and it is imperishable. Therefore, it can enter the spiritual kingdom. But when Jesus comes, you need to receive an imperishable body, a resurrected body, so you can enter the physical kingdom that he's bringing. Does that make sense? That's exactly what the Bible teaches. Ask yourself this question. If, we, if you cannot enter this kingdom... With, with an imperishable body, you need a, a you need, you, if you cannot enter it with a perishable body, it must be entered with an imperishable body, a body that's been made perfect. What is it that's going to provide that kind of body for you so you can gain entry? It is nothing less than resurrection. In resurrection, when Christ comes, you receive a new, imperishable, perfected, immutable, never-changing body. Why? Your, your, your body is literally, that's been buried, is made new and rejoined with your soul, which will be with Christ when he comes. You have the rejoining of this new body with this. You become a whole person again. You were a whole person before you died. You become only a soul after you die. And then when Christ comes back, you regain your body. But it's a new body and it's been made imperishable, perfect, immutable. And it is fit and fashioned not just for eternal worship, but so that it can inhabit, step into and inhabit this kingdom that he's bringing. Okay? This kingdom is so much better than Eden. Some today say, oh, we're going back to Eden. No, 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 no. Adam and Eve actually could exist in Eden for a while after they fell and then they were removed. 
No one who has fallen and has not received a new imperishable body can step foot in this physical kingdom. The kingdom of God is far superior to Eden or to anything that this world has ever seen. So this is something that he's bringing. And resurrection is the vehicle by which we receive these bodies so we can be members and inhabitants and citizens of the literal physical kingdom that will be on earth. What is the spance of this kingdom? This is not a subject I put in here. Some say it's just the promised land. What is the promised land? Is it a chunk of land that everyone's fighting over in Israel? I think it was at a time, but that was a foreshadow of heaven and the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. And I think it'll be a global kingdom. It's not just centered on that chunk of land that everyone's fighting over. The meek inherit what? The earth, not just that promised land. So the true promised land in its fullest sense is the entire world. To be an inhabitant in this world upon the return of Christ, you have to have a resurrection body. The world will be made new and imperishable and perfect. There will be no sin, no cancer, no death, no evil, no nothing. It cannot be a place where people who are still sinful and evil and all that inhabit. They have to be made completely in bodily form new. That's the idea that Paul is presenting here. This is why he says no mere blood and flesh, flesh and blood can inherit this kingdom. You've got to have a resurrection body to do it. So right now it's got to be entered spiritually through faith in Christ through generation. But in the future, it is to be entered physically and you have to be given an imperishable body so that you can enter it. And it's only through resurrection. Resurrection is what gives you this body. God in his power through the resurrection gives you this body. Paul is saying that if these perishable natural bodies of ours remain as mere flesh and blood and are not transformed through resurrection, we cannot step foot in the coming kingdom of Christ. We cannot. It's not a place for us. We can't go into it. We can't gain entry into it. We, we, we don't pass the immigration law, so to speak. We can't be made supernatural citizens while in our old natural self. This is what he's saying here. This kingdom of God that, that Paul is talking about and that Jesus preached about more than any other subject, it's perfect. It's, it's an imperishable place. Only perfect, imperishable bodies can enter and dwell in it. We must be made new, not just spiritually in our souls and our spirits through regeneration and faith, but physically from head to toe through resurrection. Notice also how Paul says the kingdom of God is inherited. It is inherited. Years ago, uh, building the, you know, quote unquote, building the kingdom of God was like a real major theme and subject in churches. All the churches were talking about it. You know, what, what are we doing as a church? We're building the kingdom of God and we're building the kingdom of Christ. And really sounds like theonomy or the idea that we're manifesting it here now. And all these churches were focused on this. And I think it was a way to encourage believers to engage in service and all this. It was certainly a, a big theme at, at my previous church. And I didn't fault them for that. I actually believe that's what we're doing. And, and some churches have kind of, you know, put that aside, but it's still an active mindset and preaching strategy in still a great many church circles today. Uh, but the, the, the fact is, is that the idea that we're building the kingdom of God, it sounds cool, it sounds flashy, it sounds encouraging. It kind of inspires me to want to, like, put my hands to the trowel and work for the Lord because we're building the kingdom. But in reality, it's terrible theology. 
It's terrible theology. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach that Christians are building the kingdom of God. Churches are building the kingdom of God. The Bible does not teach that at all. Okay, if it's an imperishable kingdom, everything that I build now is essentially perishable. How could I possibly be involved in building something that is imperishable as a perishable person in a perishable flesh suit? It's just not good theology. It's, it's bad theology. Now, it is true that God is pleased to use his people to grow and advance his kingdom, no doubt, and only spiritually. But the church's mission is not to build the kingdom God on earth. This is the theonomistic mindset of Roman Catholicism. It's why you ended up with a Holy Roman Empire and, and all of this, that the church was trying to take over the entire world in its goal to, to, to convert the world over to the kingdom of God. Terrible theology. It's not something that we're engaged in. The church's mission is not to build the kingdom of God on earth. The church's mission is to make disciples, kingdom citizens, by preaching the gospel, by baptizing believers, by teaching these believers and these disciples of Jesus to obey all that Christ commanded, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. The kingdom of God, think of it like this, the kingdom of God is fundamentally a gift, a gift given by God. It's something that we're not building. It's something that God is creating and something that God gifts to his people. It's not something that we build. It's not something that we gift to ourselves. It is something that our creator gives to his people because of his great love for his people, John 3.16. It is not achieved by us. It is received by us. There is a kingdom that is coming that will take over this world. It's not something that we build or establish on this world as Christians. It's something that is, that is built by Christ. Is he not preparing a place for us? What was he referring to? Heavenly mansions where we'll play football with the newsboys? Or was he talking about the establishment of his kingdom in heaven that he will bring here? What is he talking about? What is he preparing for us? What is he going to bring here? The physical kingdom. It is a gift that is given to the people of God. It is the work of Christ. It is not something that we build. Paul says it is inherited. If you inherit something, it's not something that you've earned or built up or created for yourself. It's something that's been given to you out of love. Somebody loved you enough to leave you something. $39 in your checking account. It is something that is inherited. It is something that is received via childlike faith. What is childlike faith? Simple belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's not something we build. It's a gift that we receive. It's something that we inherit. Those who trust in Christ alone for salvation inherit this kingdom. They are receiving the king through repentance and faith. And when you receive the king, you get the king's kingdom. Think of it like that. The imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance that believers possess. In heaven, right? It, it, it speaks of this in, in 1 Peter 1, 4. I might have put 1 Peter in your, in your thing, in your bulletin last week or this week. I don't know if I put it in there or not. But it speaks of this imperishable inheritance that can't be destroyed. 
by anything. It's being preserved for us and kept for us. What do you suppose it is? Again, heavenly mansions, golden streets. It is the kingdom of God. That is our inheritance. It is eternal life, which is also an inheritance of ours that is being guarded in heaven. 1 Peter 1, 4. Christ is preparing this kingdom, this inheritance of ours in heaven for his people, John 14, 3. And he will surely bring it with him when he returns, Revelation 21, 1 to 5. I looked and I saw a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem descending down and replacing those which were perishable is what the text says. Mark Taylor writes this, he says, while the Old Testament speaks repeatedly of God's people inheriting the land and the concept broadens in the New Testament to inheriting the earth, the kingdom of God and eternal life. So what you see as an inheritance in the Old Testament is a foreshadow paving the way to our inheritance, which is so much broader than a chunk of land that everyone is literally fighting and dying over over there. This whole place is going to be ours. It is our inheritance thanks to Christ. Now, the implications are staggering. If there were no resurrection of the dead, there'd be nothing in place to remove our physical perishability and make us suitable for entering and living in the physical kingdom of God. Amen? The, the Corinthians' problem was that they were denying the bodily resurrection of believers. They did not deny the bodily resurrection of Christ. They rejected our own resurrection because they just didn't think these perishable bodies could be made into something new or whatever their reason was. They were listening to the local philosophers. The implications of what Paul's saying are staggering. If there's no resurrection, we remain perishable and can't even step foot into this kingdom that's coming. How disastrous would that be? You know who can't step foot in this kingdom? is unbelievers. They have a different kingdom they're going off to. It's called hell. This is Paul's point in verse 50. He's stressing the necessity and importance of resurrection because you cannot step foot into a perfect place unless you've been made bodily perfect. Now verse 51, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. All right, the interjection, behold, calls for attention and introduces the mystery that not all believers shall sleep or be dead and buried at the return of Christ. Some people are not going to be in tombs that are raised from tombs. Some people will be moving around on earth. They'll be alive. They'll be going to their jobs. They'll be doing their life. They'll be worshiping Christ, and he'll come, and they don't, they're not dead and raised. They, they, they're going to be alive already. They will be very much physically alive during the second advent. I think that, um, honestly, I would prefer this for myself because then I don't have to go through physical death, which, even though I'm in Christ, is still a little intimidating especially when you're a pastor of the church. And I don't know, a couple of years ago, I feel like we buried like five people. And it's like, man, this hurts. Wouldn't it be better for Christ just to come right now and say, you've preached enough, okay? You've got 36 minutes left on your sermon. I'm going to do everyone a favor, and we're out of here right now. Wouldn't that be amazing? I would take that. I would say, can you give me about 30 more minutes? I spent all week writing this. I mean, it'd be awesome for God, to, for Christ to come back and just, and, and, and that's it. We're, we're alive and we don't have to suffer the, the, the pangs of death and go through it. You know, R.C. Sproul has said it many times. He wasn't afraid of death itself. He was afraid of the process of getting there. That's the scary part. But there will be some who will be alive during the second advent. And Paul is referencing them here. 
says, they too shall be changed. They will be given new glorified bodies that are fit for the kingdom of God. Those who were alive when Christ comes back, they don't enter into this kingdom that he's bringing to earth as their normal perishable selves. They have to be made new. They have to be, receive new imperishable glorified bodies. Just as those who have died and are buried will be raised with these bodies, these ones, they won't have to be raised from the grave, but they'll have to be raised and changed new. That's what he's saying. And they, along with the resurrected saints, will be caught up in the air to greet Jesus, just as people did in antiquity when they assembled to their king to either fight at his side or to welcome him home from winning a fierce battle. 1 Thessalonians 4.17, that's the reference there. It's not talking about a secret rapture. It's talking about how when a king came back from battle, the whole town went out to greet him and say, welcome back. Or when he called them to battle, they would all align and, and, and get side by side with him and then go into battle. That's the idea there in 1 Thessalonians. Every believer at that moment, whether living or dead, shall be changed. This is the effect of resurrection. It will raise and change the dead in Christ, and it will change the alive in Christ, right? If you're dead and buried, you'll be raised new. If you're alive in Christ at this moment, you'll be raised up and made new in that moment, but not from death, but from regular life. Both categories of believers will receive new glorified bodies and be ushered into the imperishable kingdom of God. This is Paul's point in verse 51. All right. So I think at this point he asks, or he actually gives this theology or, or this doctrine of what happens to those who are still alive, because the Corinthians are wondering, well, what does that mean of us? What if, what if he comes back tomorrow and we're still alive? Are we can't, you're saying flesh can't inherit these things. Paul is saying, you're going to be changed if you're alive when he comes. That's the point. Verse 50 describes how it'll go down in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed there's three prepositional phrases here that indicate the character and time of the resurrection uh, one is in a moment and the next in the twinkling of an eye and then lastly at the last trumpet so those are the three prepositional phrases, uh, phrases that indicate what it's going to be like at the time of the resurrection and return of Christ. Neither the expression in a flash nor in the twinkling of an eye, uh, they don't occur anywhere else in the New Testament, nor do they occur in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. They're only here, which I find very interesting. Both phrases imply an instantaneous transformation rather than some kind of process, which is totally consistent with the Old Testament emphasis on God's sudden eschatological intervention to judge and to save. So Paul is, what he's talking about here is an immediacy. It's not that we're, we're changed in the twinkling of an eye. We're not changed through process. Right now, we're sanctified and being made like Christ, but when Christ comes back, instantaneously will we be made most like him with glorified bodies. Think of it like this. When the last trumpet sounds, Christ will descend from heaven and all believers, either dead or alive at that moment, will be instantaneously changed in a particular order. First, the dead in Christ are raised imperishable. This is exactly what Paul says here. And then second, the alive in Christ, they're not raised imperishable, they're just changed imperishable. This is what he's saying in verse 52. 
The word we, you see it there, right? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Uh, and we, at the very end of, of 52, and we shall be changed. Underline that word. That word refers to all believers for all time. It does not refer to Paul and the other apostles and just the Corinthians, his immediate audience. It refers to all believers for all time, all Old Testament believers, all New Testament believers, all historical believers, all believers who have died and have been buried, all believers who are alive at the return of Christ. It's all believers for all time. None are left out of this. There is no believers that are ever left out of this particular twinkling of an eye and transformation and resurrection. Now, logically speaking, if all believers for all time are raised and or changed at this moment, then that seems to indicate to me that the final number of Jews and Gentiles has already come in and all Israel has been saved, which is what Paul discusses and describes in Romans 11.26. Okay? Once this upon the return of Christ, you have all of them being raised and being made new, assembling with Christ in heaven to come back down to earth. Once this happens, then you've got the judgment and you've got the eternal state. What is the eternal state? It is the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. I'm making all things new, Christ said. It is the establishment of all of these things. Now, here's the deal. That's the way that I interpret what Paul is saying here. I have moved away from the eschatological position that I had for, for years toward a new one. It's not a new one. It's really one of the oldest. But I've moved in that way because of the way I've been studying these verses. But I would say this as an encouragement to all of you. We need to be careful with this verse and other verses like it not to go beyond the simple, clear meaning of this exact text. Because what happens is we read a text like this, and then we want to use it to justify our entire position. And, and we have to stick to the context here. The context isn't about amillennialism or uh, dispensationalism or premillennialism. That's not what Paul is referring to here. It has to do with inclusion and immediacy. That's what he's talking about. What he's talking about is the instantaneous change of either dead or alive believers in that moment when Christ comes. And since he uses the word we, which in the Greek translates as literally all, we have to deduce that he's referring to all believers. Now that creates difficulty for some of us in our eschatological beliefs, and that's okay. But in context, he's really talking about immediacy and inclusion. That's what he's referring to. It's an exciting passage, thinking that all believers for all time, whether dead or alive, will be instantaneously transformed by this resurrection upon the return of Christ. Why? That's how they can step into this kingdom that he's bringing. Why? Because flesh and blood cannot possess it, cannot inherit it, cannot walk in it, cannot live in it, cannot dwell in it, cannot worship in it, cannot serve the Lord in it. You have to receive. You have a new soul. You have a new spirit now, and it'll go and abide with Christ until he comes. It'll be with him, right? To be absent from the body is to be with him. Your soul, which is really your perception and awakeness to all things, your alertness, your consciousness, that will be with Jesus. But when he comes, he's going to raise up this semi-out-of-fit body, give me a brand new one so that soul is joined with body and that I can exist in this kingdom that will last, as Daniel says, forever 
and ever and ever. It has no pause. Even when Christ hands it over to the Father that the Father may be all in all, there is no change in leadership. The leadership of this kingdom, the kingship of, the, of this kingdom is shared between the Father and the Son. It's mutual. Jesus doesn't give away something that he doesn't continue to possess. The Godhead possesses this kingdom, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So there really isn't any kind of change. It's not like Jesus is not king anymore. The Bible says Jesus is king forever. So he and the Father and the Spirit will rule in this kingdom with his subjects, his subjects of love who have new bodies. That's us. That, I don't know, man. Do we have to wait until Easter every year to talk about this? This is good stuff. So this is his point in 52. Now let's move to verse 53. For this imperishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Again, what's he doing? He's bolstering what it takes to be into this kingdom. Paul uses a clothing metaphor to explain how resurrection is absolutely essential. It is how the perishable body puts on the imperishable body and how these mortal bodies of ours put on immortality. Think of it like this. When you, when you go to a fancy restaurant, they usually have a dress code, right? They do. They usually have a dress code. I, I have to admit I was slightly bothered by the fact that we got invited to go into this very high-end restaurant down in Disneyland. And, uh, you know, and I, I didn't, like, wear a tux or anything. I don't even own that. And I only wear suits to weddings and funerals. So, but I did, you know, wore nice flannel and nice jeans. And I looked nice. And I thought, am I, am, am I dressed enough to go in there? And Rachel's like, eh, maybe. You know, Cameron and Lily, they dressed a little better than I did. But, you know, we went in. And I thought, you know what? I got cologne on. I'm wearing a flannel. Call me Dr. 33. And I get in there, and there's people wearing sweatpants and kids running all over. And I'm like, this place is way beyond you. You know, I mean, I didn't say that, but it was what I was thinking. I was thinking that. Is that terrible for me to think that? No, not really, because they do actually have a dress code that I may not have even reached. But it was clear that people had come right out of the park and went right into this restaurant and ate. And, and you, like, you can't even get into it unless you know somebody who knows somebody. I mean, you have to, like, know Pope Francis. And I was like, I kind of know him. He's an antichrist. Can I still come in? <laughs> but, I mean, they have a dress code. Dues has a dress code. You, you can't get in there in cutoffs. All right? I don't even know who wears those. But, you know, you, you just can't. It has a dress code. Think of it like this. The kingdom, the true kingdom of God has a dress code. And it says that flesh and blood, mere flesh and blood, cannot enter. You can't get into Jesus' Club 33. You have to be made new. You have to be wearing the appropriate clothing, the righteousness of Christ, and then a glorified physical body to get in. It has a dress code. All right? Probably a terrible example, but still. To enter the imperishable, immortal kingdom of God, we must be clothed in what only resurrection can provide, imperishable, immortal bodies. That's what you have to put on to get in. That's his point in verse 53. So that's under the first point of number one, the necessity of the transformation of the natural body for entry into God's future kingdom. We've talked about it. You're perishable be made imperishable. You're mortal now. You've got to be made immortal. And resurrection is how this comes about. 
Now let's move to our second main point, number two, the defeat of death and victory God gives us in Christ. We see this in verses 54 to 57. I'll just read that whole text. Paul says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death, verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And then he says in 56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. In 57, he says something wonderful, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What a set of verses. Paul moves from what must take place, verse 53, to what will take place when the perishable body puts on the imperishable body and the mortal body puts on immortality. This is exactly what he says. Um, the prophecies and what's going to happen here when Christ comes and these bodies are made new, the prophecies of Isaiah 25, verse 8, and Hosea 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 14a, they will be fulfilled in this radical, explosive, transformational moment. How will they be fulfilled in this moment? At the same time that we're given these new imperishable bodies, the kingdom comes to earth, we're given these new imperishable bodies. At that exact moment, according to Isaiah, according to Hosea, which Paul cites here, death will be swallowed up in victory. When these bodies of ours are raised and transformed at the resurrection, God is going to kill death once and for all. Death will suffer death. Finally, forever and ever and ever and ever. No more death. The resurrection actually signifies the death of death. When the trumpet sounds and, and the dead are raised imperishable and immortal, judgment follows and death and Hades are killed. They become dead. How? By being cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 20 verse 14. Death will be dead and buried in eternal flames in the lake of fire. This is exactly what is said in Revelation 20:14. This is the moment where this will take place. The death of death is so absolutely certain that Scripture prophetically mocks death's future impotence, future powerlessness in Hosea 13:14b. Death gains its power over humans through sin because sin demands capital punishment as its moral penalty. Romans 6.23, what is the wage of sin? It is death. The law is not only unable to arrest sin, it spurs it on and pronounces death as sentence. This is what Paul is, is pointing to in the, here, here in this text and what Isaiah and primarily what Hosea was pointing to, how it's going to die. He's Paul's talking about how it has, gets its power, but how it's going to be killed off. And he talks about it from the perspective of the law and from the perspective of sin. Now, let's just think for a moment here. What is most terrifying to the average Joe? Death. By far, by far. Sadly, for some Christians, death is the most terrifying thing. Shouldn't be. It's a chariot that takes us to Christ, so we should welcome it. Sproul wanted it. He just didn't want to suffer on the way there. You know, and sometimes death is accompanied, before you die, it's accompanied by much suffering. And sometimes people just go. Now, I'm hoping that's how I go, just gone. I'm eating my chunky monkey. The Lord's like, I warned you. See ya. 
Rachel's like, that's not funny because you eat that stuff every night. And she's right. I shouldn't joke about it. I joke about it all the time. Lily's like, stop talking about that. Even Lily gets mad at me for talking about how I'd rather go be with the Lord. She's like, we need you now. She's probably thinking, I don't want Cameron to have to take over your job. I know what it's like. She should be feeding me like, like health capsules. But death is undoubtedly the most terrifying thing, I think, to people, even to some Christians, sadly. It is the elephant in the room that everyone tries to avoid. Amen? People don't want to talk about it. I mean, you start talking about loved ones and stuff, it hurts. It's painful. It's terrible. It's, death is a, is a terrifying thing, and it's, it's something that, especially here in, in, in the States, in America, that everyone is trying to avoid. They don't want to talk about it. They're trying to lives through supplements and everything else and it's not something that that people want to focus on and when you begin to talk about it they they real quickly try to talk about something else nobody wants to talk about death folks stay busy they they even pretend that it doesn't exist until the grim reaper knocks on their door now statistically speaking i think death has the greatest sting of all. Remember, it talks about, Paul talks about, oh, death, oh, death, where is your sting? It, why does he say that? Because death, I think, carries with it. If it were a wasp, it would have the worst stinger of all. It is the most terrifying and most painful thing that I think people can think of. Sometimes with people, what's scariest about death is just not knowing what happens afterwards. The idea of, of darkness and not being able to breathe anymore. It probably has a similar effect to drowning, being underwater. So it's a terrifying thing, and I think it carries the greatest sting. In a recent poll, the top 10 scariest things in the world were actually listed. Okay, I don't know how trustworthy this poll is, but I think a bunch of people were asked questions. Number 10, so this is like not the worst, but it's in the top 10. These are the scariest things in the world. One of them is called deep fake technology. <laughs> And what deepfake technology is, it's realistic-looking images and videos on the Internet that are not, but make you believe something's actually happened. With the power of AI today, people can stage and make it look like war is happening or that the Jews are killing every Palestinian over there. And, and, and the media will, it picks up on these things, and then it, it reverberates and continues them on and creates these narratives. And so, I mean, sometimes I'm on Instagram just screwing around, and I'll see a car crash. And it's, it's a devastating car crash. And then I'll watch it very closely, and I can tell it's not real. But at first, I think it's real. So apparently, of the 10 top scariest things, this is one of them. Because I think this is the kind of thing that could trigger wars, stuff like that. Number nine is failure. People are terrified of failing. They are. Except in their marriages. They seem to be OK with that, sadly. Number eight, small spaces or claustrophobia. I don't think that's like one of my scariest things, but it's definitely up there. I've been in a few small tunnels, and I was like, get me out of here. I don't like small spaces. Anyone else in here have trouble with that? Yeah, Pastor Cameron has the opposite. It's big spaces that cause him trouble. It does. It's like really big, you know, massive places that fire up his anxiety. For me, it's tiny things. When I see somebody in a video crawl into a tiny hole, I'm like, no, with just a light on their head. It's like, there's no way I could do that. Number eight is small spaces or claustrophobia. Number seven is darkness. Number six is snakes. I don't know no snakes. People are terrified of snakes. 
You know what? I really think that that has its origin in the fall in the garden. I really do. We see the first serpent there. Pretty scary. Uh, number five is public speaking. That left me long ago. At first, I felt like I was going to hurl, but it doesn't bother me anymore now. But that scares people, okay? Number four is heights. Anyone scared of heights? Yeah. Number four, scariest things in the world is heights. I have developed a, a scare of heights now. I feel like my feet get weird and I just can't, like, you know, go to the edge of the canyon. It's like, this is your son. Him and Dennis are sitting on the precipice of 3,000 feet down, and I'm like, you guys are idiots. I'm gripping onto a tiny metal pole like this. I don't know how they do it. Heights, number four. Number three, spiders. Hmm? Little demons. Well, the ones with red glasses. As soon as I see one from 20 feet through a microscope or through a telescope, I believe I've been bitten. Spiders are kind of intimidating, and number, they're number three in the world. Number two, scariest thing in the whole world, being buried alive. I feel like that's claustrophobia, right? I mean, okay, listen, I, I'm not trying to commit suicide through Chunky Monkey, but when I die, and I, I, I don't really want to be cremated, I want to be buried, okay? Make sure I'm dead. Poke me with something, right? Hold up a pint of Chunky Monkey. And if I reach for it, get me out of there. If I'm like, you know, the Chunky Monkey sweater, this is what killed me. Buried alive is number two. Number one is death. In this poll, the majority of people were terrified of death. Now, for us, Christ's death on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, it causes death to lose its sting, its ultimacy. Because when sin is overcome, death is robbed of its power. Carl Schmidt. Amen? Christ's resurrection from the grave overturns death's destructive forces of decay and and, and, it, and it completely prevails over sin's deadly poison because the wage of sin is death. To illustrate this, Paul paraphrases the mocking words in Hosea 13, 14b. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He's got a, a heart and a mind full of the resurrection of Christ. And then he goes right to these mocking words because God himself mocks death at the return of Christ because Christ will completely obliterate it. Paul is filled with this idea and theology and biblical truth of resurrection. And then he cites this verse and says, where's your sting? You see, for the majority of people, it's still there. But for us Christians, it's gone. The stinger has been taken away. His resurrection from the grave overturns death's destructive forces of decay and everything prevails over sin's deadly poison. Paul cites it. David Garland speaks to this a bit. He says, he, he's speaking of what Paul does with Hosea's words. He says, Paul turns Hosea's words into a taunt. 
The rhetorical questions now sneer defiantly at death's impotence before the power and mercy of God, who wills to forgive sins, who wills to raise the dead. That's such a wonderful quote. Think of it like this. The death of death is the ultimate victory of Christ. Isn't that what Paul's referring to here, the victory that we have in Christ in the very last part of the passage? The death of death is the ultimate victory of Christ. Christ defeated death's power on Easter Sunday. He will destroy death's presence at the resurrection, at his return. Those who trust in him alone for salvation, they share in his victory. Death has no power over believers its stinger has been removed. It is not a terror. It is our transportation to the physical presence of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.8. To be absent from the body is to ride the chariot to Christ's presence. The Puritans used to say that death is the believer's friend because it gets us out of this suffering and, and, the, and the despair and the difficulty and the travails and the persecutions and all of the emotional pains and suffering that we've ever experienced, it gets us out of this, out of all of that, and takes us. It's a chauffeur. We get in the limousine, and it takes us to Christ. Hmm. And this is exactly why Paul switches to praise in verse 57. He understands this as he's describing the ultimate demise of death at the return of Christ and the resurrection. He is suddenly filled with joy and gratitude and he cries out, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Boom. That's the meaning of the second main point. Let's move to the third and final point. Number three, an exhortation to remain doctrinally sound and to prosper in the Lord's work. This is in our last verse, verse 58. Paul says it like this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What an amazing way to bring to an end this spectacular apologetic on the resurrection in chapter 15. He ends it with an, an, the ultimate exhortation. Paul concludes the final portion of his defense of resurrection with a moral word to the wise. The affectionate address, my beloved brothers, reveals that he is not engaging in some kind of hot polemic or argument. He has been teaching them in chapter 15. The exhortation here consists of three parts. First, be steadfast, immovable. In what way were they to be steadfast and immovable, right? I mean, he's telling them this is what you need to do. Well, in what area of our lives do we need to do this? Well, since chapter 15 is entirely focused on sound doctrine or scriptural statutes, and more particularly resurrection, and since Paul already exhorted them to hold fast to the word he preached to the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, 2-4, I think it's safe to assume that Paul was referring to their doctrine. Be steadfast, be immovable in your doctrine. Hold to the resurrection of Christ. That is what I taught you. This is where they were deviating, and now he's exhorting them, stay 
on course with the resurrection. Never leave the resurrection of Christ. Never leave your resurrection. You will be raised. This is what he's doing here. Mark Taylor says, to be steadfast in this context is to hold fast to the gospel and to the belief in the resurrection that the gospel proclaims. I mean, that is the most logical answer. It's all he's been talking about. Garland's paraphrase of Paul's words here are good. It's good. It says, Paul is essentially saying, stand firm. Do not let anyone or anything knock you loose from the moorings of the testimony about Christ that has been established among you. What are the moorings? That he died for our sins in accordance with scripture. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Those are the doctrinal theological moorings of the Bible. That is what keeps us firmly planted in the gospel, believing in those things. And that's what he's pointing to here. Be steadfast in the gospel. Don't deviate from it. He even says early in this chapter, if you deviate from it, then your faith has been futile the whole time. You were never a real believer. Stand firm. Do not let anyone knock you loose from the moorings. It, it, not letting anyone knock them loose. He's referring to those who were trying to knock them loose. The local philosophers who are teaching their Gnosticism. There's no resurrection because physical matter is evil. If they lose their grip on the foundational truth that Christ was raised as the first fruits of the dead, which is precisely what Paul has been teaching, if they move away from that, they have believed in vain. They have proved to be counterfeit brothers. Or sisters. That was the first thing. Secondly, the ex second exhortation, or part of it, always abound in the work of the Lord. The Corinthians themselves were the work of the Lord. They were the Lord's workmanship. They themselves, 1 Corinthians 3, 9, and 9 verse 1, 15 verse 10, 16 verse 10. The exhortation to abound also appears in 1 Corinthians 14, 12 and is connected to building up the church. The same Greek verb is used in both places, parasuo. It is translated abound right here in our text and as excel in 14, verse 12. When we put these two pieces together, it sheds light on the meaning of the ambiguous phrase, always abound in the work of the Lord. What is Paul saying? This, this, what he's saying, this exhortation, it is related to whatever contributes to building up the church. That's what he's referring to. So keep believing what you're supposed to believe. Keep building one another building blocks of the gospel with the resurrection of Jesus. Those are his first two. Thirdly, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul is reminding these beloved brothers of the cost of discipleship and of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. This kind of labor, quote unquote, was extremely dangerous during the first, second, and third centuries. Still is in some parts of the world. You may not be killed for your faith here, but you could be in Iran or somewhere else, the Sudan. If the Corinthians labored in the Lord with the gospel of Jesus Christ, they would likely find themselves in life-threatening situations, like Paul did over and over. But Paul is saying your labor, no matter what you face, no matter what you go through, no matter how much you suffer, your labor will not be in vain. Why? Because God works through the labors of his people to accomplish his will and purposes. 
that amazing? We have the sovereign God who can do whatever he wants whenever he wants, and yet he has chosen to work through fallible vessels like us. But he works through our labors for him. He works through our prayers to him. Every good work believers do in this life has eternal benefits that the Lord himself guarantees. When we invest our time, talent, and treasure in the body of Christ and the mission of the church, it may not seem like much is happening, but we are, in fact, investing in eternity. Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and rust and robbers do not destroy. Matthew 6.20. How do we lay up treasures in heaven? By abounding in the work of the Lord, by what Paul is exhorting the Corinthians to do. When we labor for Jesus, it is never in vain. Never in vain. It lays up treasures for us in heaven. Revelation 22, verse 12, that beautiful text says that Jesus has his reward with him. And when he returns, he will render to every man according to what he has done. You see, what we believe matters. It determines the kind of resurrection we will experience. If we are trusting in Christ, it will be a resurrection unto eternal life in this beautiful kingdom. If we are trusting in someone or something other than Christ, it will be a resurrection unto eternal death. So what we believe matters. But the point being is what we do matters. It determines the kind of reward we will receive. If we labored for the Lord, in the Lord, the reward will be glorious. If we labored for ourselves or for someone else, it will be consumed by fire. 1 Corinthians 3.15. If we're in Christ, we'll be one that narrowly escapes the flames, but the works that we did will not make it. Ultimately, this concludes... Paul's defense of resurrection. He ends it with this exhortation. Threefold exhortation. Keep believing, keep serving, and know for a fact that no matter what you go through, it is never in vain when it's done for the Lord in faith. That is how he ties it all together at the 